This is Alex. And this is James. And you're listening to the American Toffee Podcast. What is up, everybody? Alex here. Unfortunately, James could not join me as he's on holiday in Boston. However, I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by Patty Boyland, an Everton reporter with The Athletic. Patty, thank you so much for joining me. No worries at all, Alex. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited that you could join me. I've been, uh, James and I both got The Athletic subscription a couple weeks ago, finally. And so it's pretty cool to uh, catch up with everything you and, and Greg O'Keefe have been writing about. Um, I understand, obviously, you were at the match, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I was sat in the uh, main stand press box covering this one, and, and obviously an interesting game to get your uh, get your teeth stuck into. So yeah, all, all good, really, and a, a nice day all around. It seemed like it. So as all Americans always want to know uh, nowadays, it seems how is the atmosphere when you hear the sirens? <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting one, and it, it's actually something that I've I've looked at for, for a piece that I'm writing for the Athletic that will be be out on Monday morning. But uh in the main it's it's I think it's had quite a big impact on on Z cars and, and the atmosphere right at the start of the game and around kickoff. Um not that much of a change in kind of in the rest of the match necessarily, but it, it's there to kind of spark something I think at the beginning. It's it's there to help a fast start for Everton and they've certainly done that over the last two weeks now at home. That's a I think it was fifth minute today um the opener and then 10 minutes in was, was the Bernard opener against against Watford a few weeks ago so they're, they're certainly kind of taking inspiration from that the, the players seem to be enjoying it too um so kind of long may it continue it's one of those kind of lucky charms that I think kind of gets everybody together and and on song before kickoff and then kind of has some kind of influence on the pitch too that's a really good point I've and I guess we just got an early scoop as to what your next piece is going to be when it's released <laughs> tomorrow, huh? Yeah, well, so, you have you. <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about the lineup, right? So the lineup was released, and we had three full Premier League debuts. So we had the usual in goal and in defense. We won't even cover them. Midfield, however, we had Delph starting with Andre Gomez. And then we had Sigurdsson, Richarlison, and to my surprise, at least, Alex Awobi. And up front, we had Moyes Keane. Were you surprised at all by any of the in- in inclusions there? It's a, it's a difficult one. Uh, I think I've written before that Silva tends to be quite cautious when blooding new signings. So I was a little bit surprised that we saw three new faces in, in the starting lineup in this particular game. Uh, Delph probably had to start given his experience and his nous in, in midfield. I, I, I thought he was excellent against Lincoln and, and played a leadership role there, helping them get back into the game. Awobi, likewise, uh, his creativity is as, or, already in just a few games he's played has, has stood out like a beacon for me. The one I was more surprised by was was Moyes Keane up front because this is a guy that we've constantly been told is 19, learning his trade. Silva's urging patience with him and then he kind of thrusts him into a game against Wolves as three-man defence and what's usually a good three-man defence. So that was the one for me that was really quite surprising. I, I think elsewhere there probably weren't that many surprises. You, you could say, I guess, that Bernard's been slightly unlucky to lose his place to Awobi so so soon into the new season given given the partnership he struck up last year and, and the start of this year with, with Luca Dean. But kind of Awobi's seamlessly, uh, I, I feel, kind of almost morphed into Bernard and then some. He's come Bernard 2.0. He, he does all the work off the ball and he, and he links well with Luca Dean. But at the moment, and I think this is telling, is he's, he's making more of an impact in the final third. He's, he's scoring goals, but he's also looking like a creator as well. And that gives Everton and, and Silver in particular a bit, a bit of a headache moving forward. What, what do they do with those players? There's, there's Bernard, there's, there's Awobi. And you could even say that Richarlison, even though he's playing from the right, his, his favourite position is probably on the left too. So maybe a welcome sele- selection dilemma for, for Silver. On, on this occasion, he got it right and, and Everton got the three points. Yeah, I think that you're you're spot on with your point. I didn't think about it that way, but I thought that Bernard was definitely unlucky to lose his spot. In my opinion, in the opening three Premier League matches, Bernard was probably the best of the front four, if we're going to include Sigerson. 
because, you know, they always want to mention how Alex Wobie can play through the center as well and, and maybe even prefers it. But Alex Wobie scored midweek. He scored again today. And so, therefore, although Bernard was a little bit unlucky, Awobi might have uh, earned his place and proved that he should have been chosen today. Now, let's talk about Moise Keane a little bit more. You said you were surprised that Moise Keane started, I think I have to agree, and specifically against that the, the back three or the three center backs. I think even through last season, Everton really struggled to play against teams that set up in a back five or, or set up with three center backs. Now, how do you think he performed in general? Um, obviously it's his premier league debut, right? And he played a good amount of minutes on Wednesday against Lincoln with all these high expectations, although everyone keeps mentioning and and Silva, as you said, keeps saying, have patience with him. You know, he doesn't want to rush him. How do you think he performed? I think it was probably a a mixed bag if if we're being fair to the lad and and what we saw on the pitch this afternoon. At times in the first half, he, he looked like he was slightly up against it physically against particularly I think I think Bolly he struggled with him Connor Cody at times as well got got the better of him as well and maybe the ball was just bouncing off him a little bit too much in in that opening period Everton's threat seemed to come from wide areas and and from late runs into the box rather than anything that Moyes Keane did but but after the break I, I do think he improved and um there were, there were a couple of good runs he he obviously went charging into the box and, and was halted by what was a, a legitimate tackle in the end. Went close with a few other efforts as well and, and kind of started to come into his own when, when space opened up. And I think what we're going to see with, with Moyes Keane, and, and we did see it as well against Lincoln on, on Wednesday night, is he's, he's better when he's got space to run into and he's, he's got the ball at his feet. He's able to drive at defenders with his, with his pace and his, his dribbling ability. When the game is tight and he's he's forced to play with his back to goal, it, it's something he's able to do. But I think that's where we're going to see less from him. We, we're going to see him kind of starting to struggle against some of these Premier League defences and and particularly the physicality. So I, it, it's kind of chalk and cheese for now. Maybe that's to be expected given given how young he is, given that he's adapting both to a new league and to to, to new teammates. Um, but I, I think all in all, that there are kind of promising signs here. He, he played well against Lincoln. He, he did some good things here again. And it's nice that Everton are able to turn to the bench and see people of the calibre of a, of a Dominic Calvert-Lewin, of, of a Bernard, and, and even leave out, say, a Theo Walcott from the, from the 18-man squad altogether. That hints to kind of a, a growing and, and pleasing squad depth and, and in the end, the, the, the subs that came on as well, I think they played a role too. Calvert-Lewin helped keep the ball a little bit more. Bernard buzzed around, as, as Bernard always does, um, kind of looking to create and, and to kind of, in, in, in effect, conjure a moment of inspiration. So um, I think Silver will be happy with what he saw more or less across the board from that front line. It, it was obviously the defence that will be more of an issue to him in, in the weeks to come. Yeah, you know, Moyes Keane playing with his back to goal, he loves a turn, doesn't he? Although a couple of them were just, he was let down slightly by a, by a heavy touch. I'm sure that'll that'll come with a little bit more match fitness, match sharpness, and, and understanding how quick the league play is in England. It was nice, though, to see those players coming off the bench and, and the type of depth that we have. A big talking point on NBC, at least, during the match was was Wolves and, and playing in the Europa League this season and the fact that they have a pretty slim squad as it is. And so now they're going to struggle. They're struggling this year already with their, with their form in the league as opposed to their Europa League form. So hopefully Everton are going to be able to deal with the demands of playing in a couple cup games, right? A couple more at least throughout the season and maybe make a solid run in one of the Cups. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. And certainly if you compare them with Wolves, Everton in midweek, they they played and they, they were able to rest Bernard completely. Tom Davis, again, wasn't in the squad. And Sidibe came in for, for Seamus Coleman at right back. And Silver is able to tinker. He is, he is able to make a, a couple of changes and, and involve a Schneidel in one game and then and they may maybe drop him from the 11 the next. Wolves aren't quite able to have that same amount of quality. And I do think it, it showed here that you lost Jota and Jao Moutinho from the starting lineup, two of their best players. 
and a few of the other guys that were so important for them last season didn't quite have the same impact on on the game this afternoon. So um, maybe it's a case for Wolves of, like we saw a couple of years ago with the Europa League, you, you start in January, you curtail your pre-season in, in a bid to kind of get up to speed quickly in, in those early Europa League qualifying games. But eventually that comes home to roost. You, you need a proper pre-season and a, and a full one. And without it, I think you start to struggle now, but also around Christmas when, when the games come thick and fast. And that would be my slight worry for Wolves. They're on the whole a very well-organised outfit. They're, they're a good team to watch when, when they play with Moutinho and Nevis in that midfield. Um, maybe not quite that squad depth there, not not in the way that Everton have at this at this moment in time. And, and like I said, I do, I do think the fact that Everton were able to turn to the bench today and to look for Bernard and Calvert-Lewin and, and even Jenk Tosin if, they, if they'd needed him to come on, that, that that's kind of a boost for Silver is, as the squad kind of cranks up a gear for, for, for the new season. The way some Evertonians speak, it, it would seem as though we have uh, essentially no players at all on the bench. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Half I mean, the time, at least. I mean, but, yeah, but look, you, all of a sudden you're starting to see some of these guys dovetail and you, you've got... Iwobi and, and Bernard competing for those two positions on the on the left. You you have options in midfield. They've obviously been very unlucky with Bami in the uh, the Ivorian midfield that they brought in from Mainz. In, in so far as he's now injured, and um, that's one option fewer in in the centre of midfield. But the signing of Delph and the, and also the signing of of Iwobi as well has given them a bit of flexibility and versatility in the in the way they go about go about things and. What I think would be quite interesting for this Everton side is to sometimes move away from the kind of the, the quite rigid and and kind of conventional four two three one silver likes to play at, at least at this moment in time and and go towards something altogether more fluid where you see say Iwobi, Richarlison and one of Keenan, um, Calvert Lewin interchanging positions and you've got a fluid midfield three a little bit like Liverpool's if we're if we're going to use them as an example. Um, oh. <laughs> and I, I, I'm kind of a, I'm loath to do that, but I, I think they're the most prescient example in the uh, in the Premier League at least. Um, I'd, I'd like to see something different from Silver because I think whilst at times Delph and Gomez will be good in there as a as a duo, at times it may also necessitate a, a third body in there to to kind of counteract the top top teams. You may you may need to look to do something different in the. In the absence of Idrissa Gay, who, who effectively got through the work of two midfielders last season when he was when he was on the pitch for Everton, so I, I guess there's kind of the, the different ways that Silver can go about things now, and and that's what pleases me. If he, if he wants to change formation, then he can do that. If he if he wants to play a Wobi or leave Bernard out one week, then he, then he can do that as well. So all of a sudden, we're starting to get there. Like I say, the the thing I keep coming back to from this game is the is the defence and and some of the errors that were made there. It was it was slightly disappointing and also a little bit surprising too. It was actually extremely surprising for me because everyone always praises Luca Dean and rightfully so. He throughout last season I think he was probably our most consistent player maybe with Michael Keane. Um however today he was pretty much indirectly at fault for Wolves' first goal in the ninth minute in which Triore just essentially marched right around him and swung the ball or, or slid the cross right in front of goal and, and Seamus Coleman was not able to clear it in any effective manner. And then furthermore, the second goal <clears throat> from Jimenez when Luke Dean just kind of got caught on his heels and, and Jimenez uh, ran to the back post and headed it right in but got a boot to the face for his efforts. How... Do you think that that do you think that there's some underlying issue there? I mean, he's never usually at fault any and defensively he's generally very sound. And, and not to say that it's only his his fault for those two goals because, you know, Mina was slow on, on the second goal as well. Um he could have gotten to it before it even even reached the back post. Is that something to worry about um even as early as the next fixture against Bournemouth in a couple of weeks or do you think that Sometimes you have an off match, or, or you might not be as concentrated as you usually are. I reckon it's it's probably better to look at this in terms of the defence as a whole, and then to break it down into the constituent parts. And for me, I think 
both of the Everton fullbacks were slightly below par defensively today. Both Adama Traore on the right and also Ruben Venegra on, on Wolves' left. They, they both got quite a bit of joy against those two guys. And for the first goal, if you, if you look at the first goal that Wolves scored, Traore skins past Luca Dean on the on the left of our defence and Coleman then stumbles over the ball on on the right. That was kind of that for me that was a manifestation. That was your living and breathing manifestation of the problems Everton had in in wide areas defensively today. Um but then going the other way, I mean Everton had the better of of the Wolves guys um in the final third with with Awobi kind of finding space and, and pockets in behind um Traore and then on the other side Richarlison, Sigurdsson and, and Seamus Coleman kind of combining really nicely to to kind of cause Vinegar all kinds of problems. Obviously Dean and Dean and Coleman are, are, are better going forward. They, they had a few more problems today. Uh, I think the Dean by his own standards was was slightly um below par, like I say, for, for his own defensive performance. But I think what will please Silver most is the fact that yeah he's being at fault for the first goal and, and probably the second, if we're being honest. But then he still finds it within himself to come up with a moment of attacking quality that decides the game ultimately with the with the cross for Richarlison. So that shows character in abundance. I, I think a few other players in the squad have shown that as well. After really difficult starts of the season, both Richarlison and Gilfie Sigurdsson are slowly but surely finding some form. Um, that started, I think, in, in midweek. Uh, with Sigurdsson slotting the penalty and, and Richarlison getting on the score sheet as well. Um, and they kind of both cranked up their efforts against Wolves, uh, kind of, I felt. Um, Richarlison much more like himself, kind of, aside from all the, the, the kind of the, the good attacking stuff that he does, I think he also, at his best, kind of helps out with the press and, and closing down opposition defenders and tracking runners and all stuff like that. And it was it was good to see him doing that kind of way beyond the, the hour mark here. Um, and then Iwobi kind of contributed in that sense too. So there's definitely something to be said for the way in which Everton twice now in a week have, have come from maybe not losing positions, but positions that were, weren't were particularly advantageous to them, where they've been put up against it and the character is being questioned and then they've come through. That must show us something and, and tell us something about the um, the personality within the dressing room. Um, and also the fact that these are guys now that are starting to mesh together and starting to grow in confidence. Um, and it's a welcome tonic, of course, to see Richarlison and Sigurdsson starting to play the way they did. Because, um, like I say, I think it was quite a quite an escalation in performance levels from from the past Premier League games, at least. I agree. And, and I think in the past, even the most recent past, in terms of last season... We have not seen Everton react the way that they have in the last two matches, you know, against Lincoln and then again again against Wolves. It always felt like the confidence could just be given and taken away in a span of five minutes during a match. And once once we once we came up against it, as you said, you just saw the heads go down and they couldn't always get back into the match, let alone uh, find the match winner twice in a span you know during the match because we were drawn one one and then again two all with only 15 minutes to go now it was interesting though Richarlison's family was at the match and I, I don't I can't think of any other broadcast at least in which they they've made it a point to point it out they showed us on on NBC and then when he scored the the match winner in the 80th minute they showed his family cheering it and whatnot. Do you think that that could have also had a, a little bit of an effect on on him coming out and playing with the with the confidence and the swagger that we've seen previously, just not yet this season? Uh, to be honest, you've you've completely blindsided me there, Alex, because I I didn't know they were at the game myself, and I guess that's the privileged position you're in sometimes when you're watching on a screen and and not. I wouldn't the, call the it that, Tony. <laughs> Let's see the privileged okay. position on your couch, thousands of miles away. Hey, I mean that that, that sounds good in its own way, but um. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you you do miss those kind of things from the um, from the press box. So it wasn't something that I was actually aware of. Um, I suppose it could could play a role, but I think for me the the most important thing was that he'd had minutes against Lincoln, and he'd started to get get back to his former self. He, he was looking a little bit snappier on the ball, starting to make things happen, and and was working better off it too. And 
I think Richarlison's a really interesting case study because so much is expected of this lad and we, we, we know what he's capable of. But really, we haven't always made the allowances for him that we maybe should. I mean, the year he came to Everton, he played 60 games. In, I think it was it was 2018 when he joined. He played 60 games in that calendar year and didn't really have a break over the summer. And again, this summer, he's he's played in the Copa America and, and played a starring role for, for Brazil. So he's not really had any pre-season. Um, and he's kind of on catch-up when it comes to fitness and, and match fitness as well in particular. So I think it's just taken him a little bit of time to get into his stride, to to get where he needs to be. And whereas I definitely advocate some players, particularly, say, uh, a Keane, a Mina or even a Seamus Coleman coming out of the firing line every now and then and getting a rest in the in the Carabao Cup as it, as it is. I think he was one of those guys, along with Sigurdsson, that needed to play those minutes to kind of get that confidence back and, and to start kind of performing as, as, as we know they can. Um, so for me, it's more about that. It's, it's more about kind of starting to get his sharpness back and starting to look more like himself rather than anything to do with his family. That said, I think we all love that emotive side of sport where we see not just the reaction from Richarlison on the pitch, but the reaction in the in the stands as well when his when his family are celebrating. Um, it, it kind of it, it brings everything back to a nice human angle, uh, which obviously as a journalist I I appreciate a lot and um, and kind of shows you kind of that this is about kind of bonds and and, and the way people interact too. So who knows if it if it's had a kind of a telling impact on him. All I can say is that I've seen him kind of improve steadily over the last few weeks anyway. Absolutely have to agree. And also to your point, I want to say last season itself, Richarlison played a little over 50 matches in total between Brazil because he ended up making his way into the uh, first team squad in Brazil and and then playing for Everton and in different cup matches as well as pretty much almost all of the Premier League season. So with that, I think Marco Silva said in his um, press conference after the match, or not not his press conference, but his interview after the match today, that Richarlison had Copa America. He he was working with the team for 13 days, and then he started the first match, the opening match. So it's it's always just it. I, I unfortunately I think it, the the pressure comes with the price tag, but but also Marco Silva has said time and time again that Richarlison puts almost too much pressure pressure on himself. You know, every single match when when, you know, if he doesn't have a very good day, he's going to he's going to be the most upset in the room at all times. So I think that comes with I think that comes with just just being a winner at heart and and wanting to succeed. And the other nice thing is with that fantastic, I mean, beautiful finish for his match winner in which Luca Dean swung it in from essentially the byline to to Richarlison and, and he just looped it over into the far corner of the net. He started tapping the badge. And as we always know, we saw it, uh, Lincoln, when he took off his, sh- his, his kid again and, and showed the, showed the away fans there that he really loves the club. He gets the club, the club, uh, obviously love him. We could hear it through ESPN at my, uh, privileged seat, Patty, that, uh, <laughs> they were singing Richarlison's own song once again. And it was just a really nice thing to see. And hopefully it, it, as you said, just helps him kick on because um, a brace for him is going to do him wonders. And and Wolves are not an easy team to score against, let alone score two or three. Yeah, I mean, this is the point. I I was actually quite surprised to see Wolves perform in this way defensively because normally they're kind of quite structured and, and well set up. Um, so, so from that point of view, it, it was a little bit surprising to see the ease with which Everton were able to cut them open. But it, it was quite clear to me, looking at things from from my my own position in in the stands, that Silver had worked very hard tactically on on finding the right setup to to kind of counteract the the specific problems Wolves pose. They they tend to sit deep and they play with that three man defence you, you mentioned earlier, and not always particularly easy to break through and and break through between the lines if, if we're being even more specific so so kind of what he did to counteract that was quite interesting for me and we, we saw a lot that this kind of idea of Gilfie Sigurdsson like I alluded to earlier pulling out to the right creating kind of a, a numerical advantage for Everton over on that over on that right hand side and linking very well with Richarlison and, and Coleman and, and getting into kind of advantageous crossing positions we've hinted at, at 
um, Richarlison's improvement, but Sigurdsson was another one that was was markedly better this time around. And I thought for this game in particular, his delivery was right on point from from crossing positions. Uh, not only did he set up Iwobi, of course, but he, there were also a few dangerous balls that Moise Keane nearly got on the end of. Yeri Mina had a brilliant header saved by uh, Rui Patricio in the, in the Wolves' goal in the second half as, as Everton pushed for another. So it, it's good to see these guys starting to come into a bit of form. I, I think Sigurdsson, when he's not productive like that, you, you do start to ask questions. And I've, I've certainly asked questions in the last few weeks. If, he, if he's not producing the consistency in his delivery and he's not scoring goals, then is he the best player to play in that number 10 role, given everything else that Silva likes from, from players? You've now got a Wobi that can play in that position. Bernard potentially could, or you, or you could change system altogether and and play Delph with with a couple of other midfielders. So he's he stepped up to the plate. There's, there's now increased competition. I think that's a healthy thing for this squad. You, all across those attacking positions now, you've got, you've got guys that could come in and and take the place of a rival. Um, and uh, this was a, a a lot more fluid from Everton. It was it was a lot more clinical. Um, and, and kind of started to remedy the problems that we started to see emerge at the uh, at the start of the year because I mean in preseason they scored scored three goals in in seven games. One one of them was scored by Joe Williams, who's no longer at the club. Another one was was from Lewis Gibson, who's an under twenty threes defender. Uh, and then that final goal was was by Seamus Coleman in in, in a preseason game too. We've only had one in the, in the first three games so far this season. So when they went behind against Villa, there was this kind of nagging doubt in my mind as to whether they were going to be able to get back into it. We, we obviously couldn't on, on that particular occasion, but we've had two examples over the last four or five days where we've had to get through those games. We, we've gone a goal down and, or we've we've been in a position where we've been pegged back um, and we've had to step up to the plate and, and be more creative and, and respond. And not, if we, not only have we shown character, but we've also produced those moments, like Luca Dean free kick, Richarlison's headers against Lincoln and today against against Wolves and th- there is quality in those attacking places it's, it's just a case now of kind of continuing that momentum and continuing to kind of make sure that those players click and and play them in the right way like, like I say I, I think the tactical setup today and the use of Sigurdsson in particular was was particularly interesting to me because that, that was one of the areas in which the game was won in my opinion. That's very true I mean we saw him dropping a little deeper than he has been in the opening three matches in which he was essentially playing at or even higher than Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And, and a lot of people have been very frustrated, as you said, with his lack of output and, and production. But I'm I'm sort of of the opinion that it, it's a that's the case of, of where he's being told to play, how he's being told to play tactically. Whereas then we see a new striker in Moise Keane show up today and obviously a completely different setup from Wolves than, than previous opponents. And, and he's playing a little... A little deeper, and, and as you said, he was definitely floating out on the right hand side and, and working the ball further forward with Coleman and Richarlison. Hopefully, we see some more of that from him in two weeks. Now, the elephant in the room, the one man we have not really spoken about that very easily could still be man of the match. Um, it, it probably wouldn't even be a conversation if Richarlison didn't score a brace, but Fabian Delph. So, Fabian Delph played a good amount against Lincoln on Wednesday. And then he started today and he was one of the three that got his full Premier League debut. Marcus Silva even said in his interview after the match, the Fabian Delph is not even a hundred percent match fit yet, but he played the entire 90 minutes, 95 minutes today. What did you think about his performance alongside Andre Gomez in the midfield? I thought he was very good, but he was, he was good against Lincoln too. And, it's interesting you mentioned Silva's comments after the game. Just to add a little bit of extra detail on that, he said that he was he was probably looking to take Delph off at one point um, and had an eye on that at half-time. He was thinking that it wasn't going to be possible for him to play two games in such a short space of time, given kind of his injury issues before and, and everything else. Um, but that he didn't see any drop-off of drop off I should say in, in performance and and I totally agree with that I think if anything kind of Delph got stronger as the game got on um, he adds quite a few extra dimensions to the Everton midfield not only is he more positionally disciplined I think than than Andre Gomez and, and that's something that we definitely need in there given given Gay's no longer with the club but I think he uses the ball very well on the whole both in terms of kind of keeping hold of possession 
uh, and using all the skills he's learned off Pep Guardiola, but also playing the forward pass as well. Um, and then the, the the final thing for me is that I looked at the players when they went one goal down against Lincoln on Wednesday night. And for me, it was quite clear that the person that they, they themselves were looking to, to kind of be the inspiration and to take responsibility was Fabian Delph, uh, so soon into his time at the club. Um, so he's the one kind of trying to play expansive passes and, and release the fullbacks into, into decent crossing positions. He was the one kind of gesticulating with the referee when decisions weren't going Everton's way. And I think we did kind of see a continuation of that in, in midfield against Wolves. He, again, he looked like the de facto leader, even though Seamus Coleman had the armband. He was the one that was kind of barking out instructions and, and snapping into tackles and, and leading by example. Kind of, kind of all the things you would expect from a guy that's just won back-to-back Premier League titles and, and has got a shed load of England caps in, in his case. So he's been a really astute addition and maybe not necessarily somebody that fits into the overall blueprint where Marcel Brands and Marco Silva are concerned. We, we, we all know that those two, and particularly Brands, they, they like players of a kind of 24, 23, perhaps even younger if you, if you look at Moyes Keane, so they can nurture them and they either make a, a successful career at Everton or they sell them on for um, for kind of a, a loftier fee in, in a few years' time. Um, but Delft's come in for the kind of the here and now um, and certainly looking at the unique cir- circumstances as, as they presented themselves over the summer. You had a situation in which Phil Jagielka, the long-term cu- club captain, left, leaving a little bit of a leadership void there. Um, but then you've also had Idrissa Gay, who, who is kind of, he was, I think, at least the stalwart of the, the Everton midfield. He goes to PSG too. So you're in a situation in, in which you kind of effectively need to replace two players. You need to replace the the experience and the leadership of Jagielka, and you need to replace the quality of Idrissa Gay in midfield. And Delph, at least in part, does both of those things uh, already. Like I like I was saying, I think he looks like a leader, uh, but he's also doing a lot of good stuff on the ball as well. And and against Wolves, I, th- I think Everton got the upper hand in midfield, even though. Um, Moutinho wasn't there. They, they still had some good players in there in, in Ruben Neves and Sice and, and some of those guys. But Everton, I feel, were kind of in the in the ascendancy in the, in the centre of the pitch for the majority of the game. And that was thanks in large part to Delph and, and I think Andre Gomez, who probably improved as a result of, of Delph's performance and knowing that he had that experience alongside him. They, they worked really well as a partnership and, and hopefully there's more to come from them when, once they start to develop a little bit more of an understanding of, of what, the, what the other's capable of. Very, very well said, and I think that I think that when you see a player like Delph, and he's very calm when he's being pressed, even from both sides, his right and his left, and and we saw a handful of times in which he would turn and just move the ball forward out of out of the pressure, and then sometimes he would just be able to grab the ball, keep it in tight space, and and get it back to one of the center backs or or Jordan Pickford, and and those moments are are, are kind of tiny and they're not terribly exciting, however. I'm I'm almost of the impression that that when you see Delph able to wiggle his way out of trouble, um, calmly just bring it forward and just make a nice simple pass, whether it's five yards or fifteen yards, do you think that that could also give your teammates more confidence in what they're doing, knowing that knowing that you feel confident but behind them, and specifically maybe someone like Andre Gomez, who obviously he's always going to have defensive work to do in the center of the pitch, but now he may know that, okay, I don't always have to be worrying looking over my shoulder because I, I can be a little more expansive in, in my movements and, and moving forward and picking out a pass because Delph is there beside me, behind me, and I know that that he's got it and he feels confident that, that we will take whatever comes. I, th- I think it definitely helps somebody like Andre Gomez, knowing that you've got a midfield partner there that's, that's kind of happy to kind of work around you. And to fill in when when you if you go marauding up the pitch, he's going to be there to cover you, and and vice versa. So that's definitely got to help somebody like Andre Gomez, but I think it helps everybody around them, around him on the pitch as well. Um, having somebody in there that's able to take the ball in difficult positions, as as you've mentioned, and and kind of recycle possession and keep hold of it, I think I think is really important, and particularly in this kind of tactical era we're in in, in the Premier League at the moment, where so many of these sides press high and, and look to steal the ball back from either the, the deepest lying central midfielder or the, or the centre-backs. 
if you're Yerry Mina and you can be pretty safe in the knowledge that you're going to give the ball into Fabian Delph and he's going to keep hold of it and and maybe even turn and, and release the midfielders, then I think you're in a better position all around and, and you're happier for it. And that's the, the the other kind of the other side of the coin is that when you're press resistant in the way that Fabian Delph has started to become after his time at Manchester City, it does open up interesting avenues for for you uh, for your team kind of further forward. Um, if you're able to kind of quickly then move the ball into your attacking midfield, as we we've got three who who we all know are capable of producing moments. So it, it kind of felt like the the links between both defence and midfield, but also midfield and attack, were strengthened by the presence of Delph against Wolves and against Lincoln. Um, having Andre Gomez in there helps with that too, because Gomez, as we know, is, is a good passer of the ball and, and can carry the ball forward as well. Um, so I, I think all in all, this has got to go down as a as a pretty good start to his Everton career for, for Fabian Delph. Um, and I'm kind of excited to see what, what else he can do, really, because... Uh, Silver's right. He, he can't be fully fit yet. He's, he's going to need a little bit more time to get up to speed. But once he does, we, we should see even more of that kind of leadership quality and we should see even better stuff from him on the ball. And I'm pretty sure he'll prove at £8 million or whatever it was to be a pretty astute, astute signing for Everton. Absolutely have to agree. I think it's it's very easy during a match or thinking back to a match that you, know, you might look at, at a player like Andre Gomez and say, wow, he had a fantastic match. You know, his passing was right on point. You know, he got further forward this time around, which was which was great. But I think if you, if you look deeper in, in most players' performances, other players around them help allow them to perform in the way that they do, right? And Delph, as you said, seems to be one of the, the players in which he assists others in reaching their their potential in terms of how the system is set up, how Marco Silva likes them to play, and the fact that, you know, we have such attack-minded players around him, specifically, you know, the other central midfielder in Gomez, as well as your two fullbacks. And furthermore, as, as such a small thing that, it, thing that it seems, Fabian Delph is still now one of the only left-footed players in the squad, which kind of balances out our midfield a little bit more um, because you don't have you don't have to kind of um, naturally or unnaturally take a turn or turn your body all the way to pick a pass if you're right-footed and vice versa. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting point that you make, and it's the first time since Gareth Barry, obviously, that Everton have had a guy in there that can take the ball on his left foot and and, and play the ball down that side of the pitch comfortably as well. Uh, and it's interesting that there's already been comparisons with Gareth Barry on on social media after. The, the Wolves game and maybe that's justified in some ways and, and not so justified in others. All I would say is that what people are responding to here is a guy that's left-footed but that is playing with an awful lot of kind of first-team experience behind him and Premier League experience too uh, and an England international so he, he kind of knows the ropes, you know, knows how the league works. He knows how to negotiate his way through difficult games against difficult opposition and that's why the parallels with Barry are pertinent to some degree. Um, I just think he provides a, a quite a necessary counterbalance in, in the midfield and allows Gomez to kind of play a little bit further forward. He allows people to give the give him the ball, as I've said, in, in tight situations. And, and football's all about partnerships. I think I think you can have you can have eleven fantastic players, but if you if you're not kind of meshing and you're not a cohesive unit, then you, you're not going to win games of football. And that's certainly a as somebody that grew up watching England teams, in, particularly in 2006, where they had Beckham and Cole and Owen and Rooney, all these fantastic players, but never really meshed together well. That's kind of a main takeaway from me. You've, you've got to be able to forge those partnerships. And we've seen Everton start to develop some good ones. I, th- I think they need to start to develop some some more on, t- on top of those good ones that already exist. Um, and hopefully we've got a good one here kind of on the way in in Gomez and, and Delft because the, the, the sh- did seem on on Sunday at least to be a, a nice balance there. We, we we know that Bernard and Luca Dean can link up. We can we can see the nascent stages of a relationship between Awobi and and Luca Dean. And Richarlison and Sigurdsson with with Coleman as well coming in off that right flank. They they linked pretty well in that in that um, first half and towards the end of that second half too. So 
these are things that show work's going on, on the training ground. It shows that we, we are starting to develop those links. And that's going to be absolutely crucial moving forward, not just in the case of Fabian Delph, but, but in, in the case of some of these other guys and, and the team as a whole. Right. And when you're talking about the fact that Delph performed so well this week in, in, in the last two matches, right? And you're talking about partnerships. Obviously, if he can stay fit, which which sometimes seems to be a big question um, for Fabian Delph himself, he's going to continue to get even better next to Andre Gomez and vice versa. We have Jean-Philippe Bamin, who's out with injury form, I guess, it was said about eight weeks. You never know how that goes. It could be a week or two, give or take. And so when we're talking about competition, as you mentioned, Alex will be on the left-hand side competing with Bernard and, and so on. Um, that's going to be really interesting to see how Bamin handles the performance and trying to work his way back into the squad because I think it's fair to say that he was, he was unnaturally thrusted into uh, playing due to injury and and I think that it's going to be very positive because he's going to have to really kick it into gear and and, and really in, in my mind just retain the ball better um, in order to um, in order to push Fabian Delph out of the starting lineup um, when we move into I guess at that point probably the November-ish time frame yeah absolutely and I, I did feel a little bit sorry for Jean-Philippe I mean the, the way he came in and he was kind of thrust in at the deep end really early on and, and maybe struggled a little bit, particularly against Selhurst Park. He, he struggled with the pace and he was robbed of the ball in, in dangerous positions a few times. He did start to improve against Watford and, and look better, particularly in the first half. So for that injury to come and for it to be as severe as it, as it is, is, is a blow to him. And it's a blow to Everton as well, given, given the money they've invested in, in him. What makes this... Really quite interesting to me is that he'll he'll come back and he may well find that Delph and Gomez have, have cemented places, but that he is also somebody who, from his time in Mainz, uh, in the Bundesliga, he learned positionally how to play as uh, a number six and a four three three. So he, he he opens up a new avenue to to Marco Silva there. It may well be that we see two of those guys and Bamin play. Um, in, in some fixtures towards the the end of this particular year and in, into the start of next year. Um, he's certainly capable of doing that. And it's going to give Everton, potentially when he comes back in, in November time, you would think, it's going to give Everton another body for what's going to be a, a really grueling Christmas-December period, as as is always the case. So... It, it's difficult for the lad. He's he's, he's going to need a little bit of time to adapt, and that adaptation period has been curtailed somewhat. But for the here and now, you've got a situation in which Delph and Gomez look like good options. Um, Tom Davis isn't even making squads, even though I think to some extent he should should probably be doing that. Um, and you've got and you've got other options in there as well. Schneidlin's around. Uh, Bernard Sigurdsson and Awobi are all capable of playing in a three slightly deeper too. So. Um, there the are options here at, at, at Silver's disposal and, and you've got to think that he's going to have to use them and, and use them wisely because you can't just flog uh, Fabian Delph for 90 minutes every every week, potentially playing a couple of times a week as he has done this um, this week. He's um, 29, he's, he's, he's had his injury problems and we don't want to risk a setback. So I think we are going to have to see smart management of him. We're going to have to see smart management of others as well, um, maybe in defence, in, in, um, given the relative shortage in, in centre-back in, in the coming weeks too. Um, it, it just means that Silva's got to be extra savvy and, and extra careful while we wait for the likes of Gabamian to, to come back. And luckily, we might have, we might have uh, ended or started the international break at a fantastic point in which we got two wins this week and hopefully we can close out the period with with a whole lot of confidence as you mentioned earlier specifically for for players like Richarlison and then come back firing for Bournemouth but otherwise Patty thank you so much for joining me today I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule you know coming home from the match and, and recording with me um, at a later time in the evening no worries it's been, it's been a pleasure I'm happy to talk whenever all right. Well, 
Nonetheless, look out for another episode probably in the next three or four days and otherwise up the toffees. Welcome back, everybody. American Toffee Podcast here. James, as always, joined by Alex. Hello. And we are very pleased to have our first guest from our Discord channel. We're joined by Matt Massengill. Matt, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. Long-time listener. Well, probably about probably about four or five months now. And uh, Discord channel's been really good, so I'm glad to be here. Yeah. If you haven't already, join our Discord. You can find the information on our Facebook as well as our Twitter. It's our pinned tweet, so you can get the access link. It's been really good so far. It's been great. Um, we have our, obviously, a guest now, so... Pretty legit at this point, I'd say. But the reason we brought Matt on is because he is a referee. And so we wanted to talk to our first referee we've ever spoken with, I guess, officially certified. And so, Matt, why don't we start off? um, What how did you get to this point? What what did what did you do to get in the position you are now? And and where is that within the the pyramid of of soccer? So, yeah, um, now I just want to go ahead and say, yeah, join the discord as someone who kind of took it on a whim, do it. It's great. Especially if you live in an area with not a lot of Everton fans, it's really awesome to have that community. So do it. But to your question, um, for sure, it it took a lot of doing a lot of 12 and under games, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, I started out doing, just got certified, honestly trying to make a little extra money and did a lot of games and you start moving your way up and you really start to enjoy it. And then all of a sudden you're doing U 17, U 18 and, uh, high school games. And, you know, you meet somebody that's really high up and it's like everything, like a job. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And all of a sudden, here I am, done a couple USL matches, uh, done a couple high school state semifinals. So it's led me in a lot of different directions. So to clarify for for anyone um, not completely familiar with with American soccer, USL is the second division. So um, not talent wise, but comparative comparative to uh the championship in england and in the hierarchy over there but uh matt you're only so so you're a certified usl referee second division in the united states and you were only 22 correct yes technically it's called a uh, grade five so the u.s system goes you start at grade eight you move up grade seven six five four three three is a mls and and then your two is a fifa international and then your one is like your you know Michael Oliver or something, but yeah. So what's the timeline as far as, so you start refing U12 and that's got to be just like chaos and madness and um, kind of just like managing, trying to get the game flowing in some sense, I'd imagine. And then when you're refing, maybe the more developed players, you know, high school, even still, I don't know how it is in North Carolina, but even in high school, um, there's still not a ton of talent necessarily, depending on where you are, I guess. I'm in Maine, so relatively speaking, not a lot of people. Um, is the, is it, it's definitely a challenge when you move up, but can you talk about kind of like transitioning as you move up and as the players get better and the challenges that come with that? 100%. So yeah, starting at the U12 level, you're right. It's organized chaos. It's like herding cats. So you do that for a while, you know, that's where you kind of learn the rules to the game. You know, all the rules pretty much stay the same from U12 to whatever it may be, USL, but it's the pace. I, I, I think that would be the biggest thing I would, um, I would say is the difference. It's the pace and it's the dealing with people. So pretty much you're having to manage 22, okay, say 20-year-old men, women, whatever it is, along with managers bench, the whole thing. And I think just being able to know how to deal with each different person, and you see this in the Premier League game. A referee is going to deal with, I'll go to Everton, they're going to deal with Seamus Coleman much different than they're going to deal with Jordan Pickford because of you know, their reputation, how long they've been in the league and what it may be. And you have to know those things or honestly, you're going to be screwed. So that's the big difference when you get up those levels. You really have to know who you're dealing with and how to deal with them because the fouls are still fouls. You know, cards are still cards. It's the same definition for a tackle versus anything. So So is there any kind of like written test when you move up or is it essentially just like accumulation of experience that gets you moved up to the next level? Right. So, uh, the only test there really are is fitness tests. So that, you know, you have to keep your fitness up obviously. And, you know, if you don't, you're going to get, you're going to get showed out in the field because high schoolers are going to run by you or even, you know, the 18 U club players with development Academy or whatever it may be, but the written test, no. So, I mean, you have to recertify each year and take a test, which do gradually get harder, you know, as you move up through the levels. But 
I, I, I don't, those aren't particularly hard. I wouldn't say, especially if you've been doing it and you have the experience to be there taking that test, you'll, it, it's fine. That makes sense. So, so let me ask you this at 22, you're a certified USL referee, which is amazing. I think in my book, what do you, what do you want to do? What do you aspire to do? Do you think, do you think you want, uh, you want refereeing to be, uh, your, your profession? Do you, I know you said that you started kind of with some pocket change and then you realized that you really enjoyed it. What do you plan to do? What do you want to do? So uh, the average age uh, of a MOS referee center was because that's kind of the track I'm on. I'm a center. I do enjoy being in the middle, but it's about 32. So that may seem old to some, may seem young. I, I don't know. But me personally, I would love to do it 100%. Um, and you can make a living doing it. But my thing is, I, I graduated college, I got into an industry, and I'm having to take a lot of certifications for that, study, get my foot in the door, and I kind of have to secure that first. So I hope, I hope this leads me to an area where I can definitely thrive in that and get back into it as much as I really want to, because I've had to take a little step back. Yeah, I would definitely love to make a career out of it one day, but you know, cards got to fall in the right place for all that to happen. So, so you mentioned something there. You mentioned like a, a center track versus like I guess a, the other would be a linesman. I assume. Correct. So, so how do those how do those two tracks differ? So when you get to a grade five or you're a grade six and you're applying for the grade five, you have to. That's where they want you. USSF, US Soccer Federation wants you to decide. Do you want to go to the center route or the AR route? And then it kind of you kind of divide. You go to different training camps. You go to different trainings. You know, training videos, different online modules, the whole shebang. And I, I chose center. I I had talked to a lot of people that I you know that had mentored me in the refereeing department, and you know I I agree. My my thing was I could deal with personalities. You know, getting a call right is one thing, and yes, it's very important. But dealing with those personalities is is what makes you good in the middle. And so um, that's the one I chose, and that was about a year ago. So here I am. I hope I keep – people seem to be impressed, so I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah, a lot of respect for that. And, and kind of off of that, I guess it is true that the guy in the center has to do all the management and the, the game control, and with that also comes a lot of scrutiny. Does do your experience as a referee help you empathize with referees when you're watching a game, or do you still get as mad as the normal fan? When I'm watching a Premier League match and Michael Oliver's in the middle and he's killing it, and you know, I'll make a comment to my friends or something. Wow, he's doing a really good job, and they give me that look, like just shut up. You know, nobody cares how the referee's doing. And I'm like, no, if you think about it, he's doing a really good job. So I, I do, I do emphasize a little bit until they, you know just absolutely blow something. So if it's Mike Dean out there and he's just throwing a red for God knows what reason, then I, I I will get mad. And especially I think it'll get worse as the season goes on since I know they had the use of VAR. All right, Matt. So you are a certified professional referee. I think we can call you that. So let's talk about VAR, the implementation of VAR in the Premier League this season. How do you think VAR has played out thus far in the first three weeks of the season for the Premier League? To preface that, I, I would say... The Premier League is one of the last ones uh, to use it, which I think was smart on all levels for them. You know, the Premier League does a lot of bonehead moves sometimes, but this was a really good one. Um, you know, they watched it at the World Cup. They watched it in the Buddhist Liga. You know, God knows if they watched it in the MLS, but, you know, it, and it so far it's, it's worked, I think, to a large extent. Um, I think they did a good job of implementing it, being very strict with what they're going to use it for. Um, and I think they've, done what they can to make it as fast and useful as humanly possible. My thing with VAR is uh, we were all for it last season because as we all know, Everton were, were very unlucky and we had some, even from the get-go, the first game of the season, and we've touched on it a few times, the Jag, Jags red card. And there were, there were countless other moments throughout the season where we felt like we were really hard done by a referee's decision. And so they finally implemented it and everyone's crying out for it. And then the instant that it's put in the first time it, it's used, you know, if you're on the side where a call is reversed in your favor, you're going to be for it. And I think the first time you get burned by it hits a lot of fans a little close to home and they, they take it, they say, Oh, it's ruining the game. It's ruining, you know, the taking the energy out of the stadiums, which I don't really buy into, but there are like a few, it's only used in certain situations, right? So the whole goal is to not, 
completely relitigate every call made by the referee. So take us through um, the main situations in which VAR can be used. So absolutely. You know, their big thing was they don't want to re-referee the game. And you're talking about taking energy out of the stadium. Just ask Man City. You know, I don't know if there's any energy in the Etihad before. <laughs> Got him. But, but yeah, so I think uh, City has been really doomed by by VAR so far, and they've been the ones to ask. But, you know, they, they, they strictly are going to stick to four situations this year in the Premier League, and they may expand next year, but they're going with mistaken identity. Okay, you rarely see it. You know, if Richarlison were to headbutt somebody and he gives the card to Moise Kane, he's, he's going to go back and see, okay, I gave it to the wrong person. Go give it to Richarlison. Um, straight reds. Obviously, think that Jack Yelka on opening day last year. Any straight red card is going to be immediately reviewed by the guy upstairs, whoever that may be. And if he thinks that, okay, this could be questioned, he's going to, he's going to mic down to the center. He's going to go over to the video board and see what he thinks. Uh, offside, you know, I, people have complained about it. It's pretty black and white to me. You're offside, your arm, your fingernail, it's offsides, you're offsides. Um, so that can be very quick, and I think they've done a good job with that. And then penalties. So this is the tricky one. Um, if you haven't noticed, so far through the first three weeks, they've set a very high bar for overturning the call on the field. Um, I can't think of a particular example right now. But uh, Well, let's talk yeah. about, not to cut, cut you off, right? But but last weekend, Richarlison was, it, technically they were side by side, but it was almost like an elbow to the back, and he was shoved uh, down inside the box by Jack Grealish, right? There, on the, there was no on the right side of the box, is that right? Yes. yes. So there was no yep. call, and I know they reviewed it, and, and I think everyone is confused. Like, why do we have VAR if that's not going to be overturned when it's clearly a foul? Was it? Could it be kind, kind of soft? Sure, but we've seen Mo Salah get that call five times last year. Well, we know we're not going to get the calls that Mo Salah is, but <laughs> even with VAR, it's just not going to happen, so we can't, we can't rely on that, but I agree. The guy upstairs probably looked at it and he said, you know what? This is not egregious. This is not a completely blown out of proportion call. He, he, I'm sure he saw it and he really took it into consideration and he didn't blow the whistle. I'm not going to overturn it because there could be argument. They're looking for the ones that there is no argument that we got the call wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense. And, and I think I think it's important that that's, this, that's the case. So you're not, like you said, re-refing every single game. Um, and then you're you're calling into question the the quality of the referee himself if you get a couple overturned. It should be that the call it's it's similar to NFL football or really like any any American sport because I think Americans have had an easier time accepting what VAR is and what it means to have a call overturned than English fans of soccer who have been so used to just like you look at the replay and it's clearly they made the wrong call and you just have to moan about it, uh, call into talk sport or whatever it may be and just complain about how bad the refereeing is. In my view, it's it's if the call is was objectively wrong, then it should be overturned. And like you said, that's where penalties get get complicated. But for me, like I would much rather have even if the crowd celebrates and only to realize that the goal gets called off because he was offside. I still think that that's a net positive for the game overall, because that's, you know, it's objectively true that he was offside and that shouldn't have been a goal. And I think though it may kind of change, it may take a little bit for fans to adapt and come around to it. I think after a season or so, I think everyone's going to kind of mutually agree that it's, it's a success. Right. I agree. So, so what you mentioned there is a goal scored, they celebrate offsides. Okay. Would you rather them go and call it offsides or the other team and talk show soccer, be able to talk about that for the next week that he was offsides? I see. I, I tend to think, okay, well, they got the call right, so now these talking heads on TV can't sit there and talk about how they won the game because he was offsides for the next week. Exactly, and it's like in basketball. Like if the player is, for example, like steps out of bounds and it's the edge, tiniest edge of his shoe that touches the line, but the referee didn't see it. He still touched. He still touched the line. He's still out of bounds. Um, you still want to make the right call in every situation. So I, I think people. It's sort of like you know, whatever change you make, people are going to complain about no matter what. But overall, I, I still fail to see how people could have been so vehemently for VAR up until the first game kicks off. And then as soon as it goes, a call goes against them or an or a review goes against them, rather, they're all of a sudden do a complete 180 and they're just like, oh, this is ruining the game. It's ruining the game. No, it, it disappointed you on that one call, but it was still the right call. I mean, Absolutely. to be fair, we know how fickle soccer fans are in general, right? I mean, 
Although it's not like being an Everton fan is just an absolute treat when we talk about uh, winning the league or winning trophies because uh, not in my lifetime. But I'm sure most people, well, I won't say most, a lot of people have seen something that that came out, I want to say probably early on in the summer, probably even before the transfer window opened, called the ESPN Luck Index. So the ESPN Luck Index for anyone that hasn't seen it or has seen it but didn't really know what it was about. So it it was a a research project commissioned by ESPN and apparently sponsored by Betfair Exchange. Um, (laughs) And it was carried out by the London School of Economics to examine how the Premier League would have looked last season at the end of the season if luck were not a factor. Everton actually were judged the most unlucky. And let me put it this way. Everton were judged the most unlucky almost twice as the second most unlucky contestant, which was Man City. And so they, they put out they put out a an adjusted table that essentially says, okay, if if everyone's luck index factor was moved to the center at zero, there was no luck involved, where would the table uh, end up? And actually, Everton would have moved up two points or two places to sixth place. Man, you would have been seventh, Wolves would have been eighth, which side comment that I think further proves my point, Wolves um, overperformed last season, but I guess we can talk about that later. So my question for y'all, maybe specifically Matt first is, do you think this season VAR is going to be good for Everton specifically? I want to say yes. Uh, I I think a lot of the times, and I know I'm speaking clearly from an Everton fan point of view, I'm not being very uh, objective here, I'm being very subjective, but yes, I, I think so, because as soon as we hit those matchups against the top six or, or even the Wolves or the West Hams, I, we always feel like that one call goes against us or that one situation, the offsides, you know, what was it? I mean, even when we're playing against lower leagues, was it Millwall last year? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was offsides by what? Almost a yard. And, you know, it cost us a cup run. Oh, well, we probably would have been drawn away to somebody like Sunderland and lost next round. But anyways, but, you know, it, it happens. And, and that literally is one of those situations where, wow, we probably would have went through if that doesn't happen or something something of that nature. And in the Premier League, over a course of 38 games, I mean, two mistakes like that, that's six points. You know, you think about six points. That's the difference between Europa League and we get some players like Moise Kane. We didn't really expect to get him without something such as Europa League. But, you know, you start pulling those names and that's two offsides calls. So, yeah, I think it could help. And I think in some respects, like many fan bases feel like they get the short end of the stick when it comes to refereeing. But, you know, the luck index would indicate that we are genuine. We are, you know, within our rights to feel that way. And so I do think it will be a positive for Everton. But but ultimately, it's really just a positive for the whole league. I think it's a step in the right direction. Yes, it takes some of the maybe organic nature of the game away but the benefits of it where you're not left with these glaringly obvious wrong calls that stand and result in like you said massive point swings or result changes I think I think it's hard to look at that and just say say that that's a bad thing for the game overall no I I completely agree I think it's good for the game I I think eventually give it two or three more years and it'll be implemented in everything and it might expand in the Premier League Um, and I really don't know what they would expand it to but you know, I think they did a good job of looking at the World Cup and looked how slow it was. And, you know, so far in the Premier League, if you watch any games, it's very quick. The f- and the most important thing they did was the fans know what's going on. I think that was a big thing that a lot of people were worried about. You know, even watching on TV, we may not be able to look up at the screen in the, in the stadium. Oh, by the way, I want you all to take a guess of the two stadiums that don't have a screen to let fans know that there's a VAR check going on. There's two Oof. two stadiums, and it's not like oh. a it's not like a Vicarage Road. So it's you know. So take a guess. I'm gonna say is Anfield one. Yeah. Yes, 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 indeed. Anfield, of, of course. course, is one. Classic. And there's one more. What about the other? I'm gonna Stanford Bridge, maybe. Old Trafford. Oh, okay, okay. Just an old stadium. Yeah. So those are the only two stadiums where they're gonna have to come over the PA and announce that there is a VAR check going on. So, but. So it's interesting, but at least the fans know what's going on. I think we've done a, or I think when you watch it on TV on what is, what is it we have to watch on NBCSN, you know, they've done a decent job of telling us when there's a check going on. And you can tell because all the players are standing around, right? Huddled around the referee, just waiting. So. Yeah. And the thing, the thing with that and the transparency, I think is really key there right? because fans so often feel like refs have no accountability and they can just make these calls with impunity and they don't have to really have any kind of repercussions for it and i think this 
will, in a way, it protects the refs because they're not going to be scrutinized for a blatantly wrong call. But it also helps the fans kind of understand where the league is coming from. And and when you get the call right, everyone, unless you get kind of screwed over, I guess, you you just have to come away knowing that justice was served. No, I agree. And then, you know, it takes a it takes a real man, woman, whatever you want to say to admit that they were wrong. So going over to that VAR screen and then coming back and admitting you were wrong, that's big. You know, they haven't had to do that. So they're going to have to get really used to that. You know, like I said, they set a high bar, but yeah, but I, I, I want to shift to another big thing was last year, if you were playing in the champions league, you were using VAR on Tuesday, Wednesday nights, and then the weekends you weren't. So I think it's really good they finally have some continuity going in what they're using VAR for because I'm sure for the Man City's, Liverpool's, Tottenham's, Chelsea's that was that was an issue and it probably sucked to be honest. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And and when we're comparing like the speed, as you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I mean watching the MLS as I'm a Seattle fan, it feels like anytime there's a VAR check in MLS, it takes absolutely forever. And so, you know, w- when you pointed out, I will say that, that, that I also agree it's, it was a good choice by the Premier League to wait a year, watch it implemented elsewhere. Obviously, you know, when, when you have this big idea of, of how any system can be improved, whether that's at work or on the pitch, you're always going to run into actual kinks in, in this ideology. And so I think in practice, watching them, understanding that we can check VAR, but you know, the center doesn't necessarily have to run all the way across the pitch and look at it himself, you know, and, and then limiting the, the situations in which they're going to check it. I think, I think in general, having a better understanding based on, based on uh, you joining us and, and giving us a nice explanation. Uh, I think that it's, I think that it's a, it's a very positive thing for the league for Everton. And I hope that we see a positive reverse decision in our favor using VAR very soon. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight and your knowledge of uh, the U.S. refing system and and VIR in general. Uh, Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at USA Toffee Pod to stay up to date on the latest episode releases and Everton news. And we'll see you guys next time.